Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ashu. Today we have a special treat as we talk to Dr. Eric Legome about the Mount Sinai protocols for treating COVID-19 patients. They have very generously allowed us to post them on our website for all of us to use at the bedside and agreed to continue to update them as new information is discovered in the treatment of COVID-19. You can find all the protocols listed on the COVID-19 page at ebmedicine.net, along with the full issue that is also continually updated and a separate tab detailing what's been added since the last time you went to look at it. You can also find information there about all of the podcasts devoted to COVID-19, calculators devoted to COVID-19 patients, and additional resources that are relevant to treating these patients. It is a massive library of information devoted to this disease and caring for patients who have it, as well as a continuously updated library of information. I highly encourage you to go there today after you listen to Dr. Legome. Eric Legome, I am the Chair of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai West Hospital and Mount Sinai Morningside Hospital, uh, formerly known as Mount Sinai, St. Luke's, and uh, Roosevelt. People also know it as that. Um, I'm also Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and part of the Mount Sinai Health System. Now, in these protocols, we are looking at 10 different sections that are divided really as the patient kind of progresses through their COVID-19 uh, disease, starting with the initial laboratory testing and imaging. And that section progresses then onto things like disposition and admission criteria, what happens in a cardiac arrest, what medication treatment guidelines, intubation protocols, asthma protocols, shortness of breath, and even palliative care treatment and how to care for the patient who's short of breath, but in that palliative care algorithm, management of death and how to talk with family and patients. Discharge, which is fantastic that there are patients being discharged. That's wonderful. And then guidelines for prone positioning and some of the critical care items there at the very end. And there are 16 different tables for you know, rapid access to this protocol information. We'll start with the first one in table one, which is in the first section there for laboratory testing. I found it very helpful that you ended up dividing the laboratory evaluation into what occurs in the emergency department, and then what happens on the inpatient side. As you looked at the emergency department, you've got six items there for labs. These seem like the most commonly ordered things, the, the CBC, uh, a basic metabolic panel, liver functions, a troponin, a BNP, and then the venous blood gas. And that, after looking at all of your hospitals, the eight hospitals in the system, and as you pro progress through the massive numbers of COVID-19 patients, this is kind of boiled down to the, the minimum necessary for a patient who's symptomatic enough that you're debating admission? Yeah, so one of the things we found is that there, there really was a large number of patients um, who came in who were sent home from the emergency department or sent home from our tests or from our tents. And so um, we found for those, it was rare that a test would actually change our disposition. If they, and, we and we'll talk a little bit about disposition criteria. So we found for those, there was, there was really the, you are just gonna go home because um, you, you don't meet the criteria you would come in. And we didn't really find that if we did a test, we didn't think it would really change anything, similar to any patient that comes in the emergency department. And then there were some that would come in. And the reality, if you look at the admission test, we're not gonna act on a ferritin in the emergency department. We're not gonna act on a CRP. I think it was helpful, and, and as, as we look at kind of the changes in the literature, you know, there's different 
um, questions they may answer and different prognosis they may give. And so I think it was helpful. And it was also a little bit helpful, I think, in the sense um, of thinking about, at least for the inpatient, of what's the likelihood if the test is going to come back, could it be positive or negative, if it's, you know, gross calcitonin is something. But the reality is it rarely changed what we did in the emergency department for the patient in front of us. The tests that we looked at are ones that might give us some better sense of do we need to do something? Are they significantly dehydrated and we might find something in the seven? Is there, you know, in the in the BMP, is there something else in there that might help us? Just as any patient who comes in after some, you know, severe viral or bacterial illness. Um, the CBC may help us a little bit, um, the same way it may help us a little bit with any patient. Um, you know, urine. The troponin, I think, was a little bit different, and I think we occasionally found things we didn't expect. Um, I'm not sure if we started doing it on every single patient, would we have found some abnormal troponins in the well health, the healthy-looking patient we were discharging? And that's a possibility. Um, the one thing I don't think is in there is the one other test we would do on patients who had some other concerning symptoms or findings is we do EKGs relatively um, uh, a significant number. But outside of that, um, this is really the same way we treat any patient who looked somewhat ill that we'd be thinking about bringing into the hospital. Tell me, how early on did you, at the Mount Sinai system, have the ability to run an in-house COVID-19 test? God, you know, I, I think back to this, you know, it seems like this was years ago. Um, it was, so even to as they, so the testing is done at the main Mount Sinai campus. It's being run about every two hours, but there's actually, um, there are issues around that. So they have to have the right number of tests. They're actually not allowed to run it with smaller numbers because of the reagent and, and, and some, some um, uh, regulatory issues. And so it was, um, it took a while. The first couple of weeks, really the only way to get the test done was we would have to go through um, a whole kind of plan of you'd send a biofire looking for other respiratory diseases, you'd send a flu test, and if they were negative, then you would send us off to the state, and then you'd get something back a day or two later. And so um, it was probably several weeks into this, I, I don't remember the exact date, maybe early March or so, um, but one of the things that we actually started doing, because the volume got so high and the backups became so significant, that as we started getting and we stopped doing the um, other tests before we'd send the test to the state, we just found that it didn't change anything. And we also found that as the prevalence was rising, the chance of co-infection also was rising. So even if we had a positive flu, it didn't rule out COVID. Now, some of the smaller hospitals or more rural centers that don't have in-house COVID-19 testing are trying to make a decision about whether or not someone has COVID. So they've already decided, you know, this person is symptomatic, hypoxic, needs to be in the hospital. But now I'm debating, do I need to negatively isolate this person? Do they have to be on airborne precautions? Can we cohort them? That kind of thing. So some of these labs in the inpatient column became almost surrogate markers for COVID-19. You know, well, their ferritin's up, their D-dimer's up, their LDH is up, and they're symptomatic. You know, this is probably COVID, but I don't have a test available. Was there much of that activity going on early in the process before you were able to run tests? Not so, to, to, an appoint, to a point more on the floors and they were trying to cohort patients. Um, you know, we had talked a little before, what we, we had ultimately done, even as we had the test, um, it would take a long time to get them back. And as the volume grew and the prevalence grew, we started cohorting patients based on some clinical factors. And because it was so, so prevalent in our community, 
we would basically say if they had a bilateral infiltrate, if they had fever, if they had a cough, if they have hypoxia, and we defined it as equal or less than 92%, um, they pretty much had COVID. And, and as we started looking at that, we found that was about 95% specific. And we found that even when, it, even when the test was negative, no one was finding any other cause. So, so, so for the emergency department, it wasn't changing a whole lot. I think for the floors, it was somewhat helpful. Um, and, and you know, I think as you start adding on those criteria, the chance of it being COVID gets higher and higher. And I would say in a place where you may not have the same prevalence, I think it's probably a helpful test to, to add. And I like the approach to imaging. This is in table two, still in the first section, but I like the the clinical approach to imaging. So here in the table, it says you know, your chest X-ray, you can avoid really if you have a benign lung exam and the patient isn't obviously hypoxic or in any kind of respiratory distress. And then there's a remarks about ultrasound and, and CT and CT being uh, not necessarily clinically useful if you I've already got a diagnostic chest X-ray or a chest X-ray that shows infiltrates and in a high prevalence scenario. So that was more uh, more helpful. I've seen a lot of people use imaging pretty liberally, but this seems very in line with the clinical exam of your patient. You know, in the in the same issues we had with testing of you know for for especially in New York City, there just wasn't testing available for the vast majority of patients, and still even today, it's it's slowly growing, and so we found that. You know, the test wasn't going to change what we could do. If they were not hypoxic, they were well appearing, they were breathing easily, it wasn't clear that a chest actually would change what we would do. You know, if we found some ground glass appearance on it, we still were not going to admit them. We didn't have the resources, we didn't have the space. Um, we are now looking back at those patients that we sent home, um, either with, you know, some follow-up or very close follow-up, mostly by telehealth, and finding out if they did they do okay. Um, I, I can tell you just from my own kind of anecdotal of going through and signing lots and lots of charts, um, the vast, vast majority seem to do perfectly fine and didn't come back. And we know that's kind of the natural history, just there's so many of them. Um, and so I think it's a probably uh, the right approach because if it's not going to change what you do, um, I'm not sure what the benefit is. Same with, um, with the uh, chest CT. You know, early on, there was a big rush. You know, that's what they did in China. We really need to get chest CT. And we found out it just kind of told us what we already know. Um, and so that really kind of went to the wayside relatively quickly. And then the next section, this is section two, talks about disposition and admission criteria. And you have well-organized lists of criteria for whom you'd recommend admitting or discharging, and then even to the level of care there. Tell me more about how you arrived at that. You've got these broken up into categories, four different categories of risk factors. How did you end up using this clinically? So I think we, we actually used it quite well clinically in looking at, you know, there was obviously the one question of how well can this person self-isolate um, and how well can they come back if, we, if they get worse and how well can they access care or access you know, follow-up. Um, but we, we found that patients we normally would, brought, would have brought in, there just wasn't the ability to do that. It just, we just couldn't do it. And so um, we're looking at this specific question is how did these patients do? We think once again, anecdotally, they did, most of them did fine. We also knew, and one of the hard things I think it was, be, what, what this helped with our physicians is to be able to say, you are going to get this wrong sometimes. And, and wrong doesn't mean you did the wrong thing. Wrong means that they're just gonna come back. We, we missed it. 
um, but it wasn't gettable. You know, you, you just couldn't bring them all in. So this is okay. We're giving you kind of a paradigm or algorithm. Um, this was mostly developed, though, to be honest, on patients that already were inpatient. So we looked at some of the Chinese literature and said, who were the patients that tended to do worse if they were when they were admitted? And so one of the things, and I think we spelled this out in there, this is really based on a group of patients. It was applied to a group of patients that it wasn't built for. Um, is it worth it? Did it work? We think it did. We're looking at that. And it seemed, once again, the volumes were huge. And we weren't finding that even with patients who had risk factors, if they were well appearing and we could get them the right follow-up, most of them did perfectly fine. And so we think, we think I, I would say, if you are in a situation where you have lots and lots of beds and the patient is kind of borderline, I would clearly go more towards saying, you know, it might be safer to bring the patient in. But if you're in a situation where you just don't have it, I think this helps give some sense of, um, of uh, how to think through, you know, who's at the higher, highest risk, lower risk, and then where is it reasonable? And we use for the um, kind of moderate risk patients or the higher risk patients who were not significantly symptomatic, but we still think had COVID, um, we actually used uh, telehealth and we had a couple different um, processes to do it to contact them within 24 or 40 hours to check how they were doing. We, we in, some, in some situations, we were actually able to give them pulse oxes too, which I think was a really great option um, to be able to check from home versus just talking to them. Um, and, so, and so I think there's different things you could put into this, uh, but we think it was a relatively helpful, especially when we got into the tents and we had people who weren't necessarily comfortable or, or this is what they did all the time. And so it gave them a really nice algorithm to think about, yeah, this person fits into this, um, they could go. When you were looking at the telehealth option and scheduling that follow-up, was there something the physician or PA could select that would say or flag this person in the computer for a telehealth follow-up visit? Yeah, and that's, you know, and to be honest, that's one of the benefits, I think, of being in a large system that we're able to bring some of these resources in. And, and a lot of them, they came, they they were literally developed kind of on the fly as this was happening. But um Next day, telehealth follow-up became available. Um, some of the things with like uh, the pulse ox were on some were, were not available everywhere, um, but they were ultimately put into the, to several several of the areas, several of the tents, and, and we used them. And, and who performed the the telehealth visit the next day? Did you have a PA do that, or did you have a physician do that, or? It was a combination. Um, they were done. Some of it was the ambulatory groups who essentially, um, you know, the clinics were closed um, and the practices were closed. And so they were calling. Um, some of it was PAs and some of it was physicians and a whole range. As time went on, there was probably more emergency physicians, but early on, it was a little bit of everything. So they used the same criteria when they did the telehealth visit the next day and, and asking patients how they're doing. They're following the same kind of protocol. This was really a ED-centric um, protocols. It did, unfortunately, did not spread to the rest of the, um, the, the community. And I, and I think the telehealth groups and some of the amateur groups have some of their own protocols. Okay. And then the, the section three talks about cardiac arrest. Now, how did uh, CPR and cardiac arrest change in the setting of COVID? I, I think the biggest change is one, one is, um, and, and this also radically changed, I think, over the first couple of weeks because we were seeing them and then we weren't seeing them because EMS just wasn't bringing those patients into us anymore. Uh, but some of it, we, we went back and so, so really based on two things. One is how do you set it up so it's the safest possible? 
So one is rather than just running in the room, you really need to have one pieces set up beforehand to be able to bring the right equipment in, two, limiting the number of people that go into rooms. So it's not all hands on deck, it's as few possible hands on deck. Three, making sure that one's person's job is to be out of the room, but to watch what's going on and to stop things if people are exposing themselves in a way that's that, that's really dangerous. And, and then four is a little bit of some of the equipment and making sure things like HEPA filters are being used if you're doing bag valve masks or when you put them onto a vent, if that happens. Um, so, so part of it was really focused on safety. And the second part was, I think that we all know that there are certain times we do uh, CPR, we do full ACLS, and we know that the outcome is going to be, it's not gonna be positive. It's essentially a futile thing. And so what we did is we went back and looked again at the literature and said, you know, if we come up with certain parameters, what's the chance that we're gonna miss something and someone's gonna walk out of the hospital neurologically intact? And we know if there was no um, CPR in the beginning and it lasted for a while, if they come in with a non-shockable rhythm, we're talking less than 2%, less than 1%. And we felt that in a place where we really are resource limited, we were worried about running out of ventilators, it never happened. Um, and we didn't wanna make decisions based on something that wasn't happening. But we also said that realistically, if we put this patient on a ventilator, um, what's the chance of walking out of the hospital? And if it was so low, we felt it was probably medically futile and to, um, to put so many people in harm um, for something we didn't think we'd help. So it kind of, it was kind of a, a, a protocol and a guideline. We didn't tell anyone they were not allowed to. Um, and there clearly were some cases that, let's say they had someone who was very young and they felt, you know what, this is probably worth this, worth trying, or maybe this isn't COVID, maybe there's something else going on. Absolutely, they should, they should do it. So it was more of guidelines, but it was guidelines that were built about, let's be practical, let's be realistic, and let's be safe for everyone. Now, section four talks about medication treatment guidelines, and this is probably less robust than the rest of them, primarily because there aren't a lot of medications that actually make any difference. But highlighting the table itself is excellent. It really runs through most of the things that we have been looking at online and the conjecture people have about things like, does oseltamivir make a difference? What about ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers? Should we discontinue those? A couple of things that were interesting to read, one was that there is still a role for steroids here in the bottom section based on certain kind of criteria, which I found interesting. How did you guys come to that decision? Both the uh, anticoagulation and the steroids were mostly coming from the ICU group. And there, there was, uh, and, and these are obviously their guidelines, um, but they spent a lot of time, one, looking at some of the literature. They looked at what came out of the WHO and what came out of Wuhan. And I think there clearly are some discrepancies and there are different ways of looking at it. They looked at some of the literature around ARDS and nonviral illnesses where there may be differences in what is beneficial versus not beneficial. And there's some, um, I think, discrepancies on what works, what doesn't work, or how well it works. And I think it's still up for grabs. And then they looked at kind of the uniqueness of the specific disease with this cytokine storm. And so we actually sent out with this to our, our, our physicians, the literature around why do people think it might work for this specific disease. And if you look at some of the, the other um, pieces coming out of the NIH, I think that just came out, they generally don't recommend it, but they also, uh, I think, leave it to, if you're part of a controlled trial, if this is part of some sort of scientific 
question, um, then it's probably not an unreasonable thing to do. And that's kind of where this fit, fit in. Um, so in the ICUs, they're looking at this. And if you look at the criteria, this is really um, left for patients that for the most part are going to the ICU. So they're gonna get this treatment anyhow. So part of this was to educate our physicians and say, look, this is happening. This is why it's happening. It is a controversial thing, but this is the reasoning behind it. And so if it gets started, or if you feel that you wanna start it, it's not an unreasonable thing to do. And some of the same issues with anticoagulation, I think that is becoming much more accepted and that's clearly starting to ramp up, um, especially with full anticoagulation for the sickest patients. And so, so I think some of these were very early, but we started putting them in. And part of this was based on um, both theory and what they were seeing in the department or in the ICUs, um, along with what was slowly starting to take place in many of the academic centers. Yeah, and speaking to anticoagulation, as we see more and more evidence that this is a prothrombotic condition, I also very much appreciated the fact that you have some detailed criteria here for the use of uh, low molecular weight heparins and even some of the oral direct thrombin inhibitors, as opposed to just everyone gets a uh, IV infusion of heparin and has to have a pump and a bunch of tubing. So this is uh, clinically very helpful. There is there are guidelines here for based on BMI and creatinine clearance and should they be on lower dose or full dose twice a day or once a day low molecular weight heparin injections and then even at what point you could give someone something oral like the rivaroxaban or a pixaban. So that, that I find that to be very helpful. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, you know, if you look, so most of these, once again, are patients where they're getting the full dose anticoagulation are patients that are going to the ICU. And, and there's not a lot of data out there. I think there's a Dutch study now, a French study showing that the patients in the ICU um, who had this, the, the, the rate of thrombosis was 20% or 30%, which was clearly much higher than the similar type of patients who didn't have COVID. And so, so the clearly prothrombotic, you know, does this work? Um, it's a little bit unclear yet, uh, but I think you know we're, they're looking at this both as a study, but also something that seems to make sense and um, is targeted to a problem that we're all seeing. Now, section five talks about intubation protocols and the stepwise approach to the management of a hypoxic COVID-19 patient. Tell me that stepwise approach. I, I would say both. The, the biggest thing about it is it really looks at a couple couple things. Um, one is it's based on how do you do it safely? Um, so one, the same idea behind um, into, behind CPR and ACLS is, you know, limit the number of patients, people in the room, set everything up beforehand, make sure that you have a clear kind of consistent approach to it. Um, we recommend using video laryngoscopy, clearly. Um, and we think that probably is a safer, although unproven, a better way to do this. Um, we did not go with using kind of things like boxes and putting things over. And, and I, I think they, you know, we, we, we had some discussions about that. We went back and forth. We spoke with our anesthesia colleagues and across the system, we did not go with that approach. Some of it with it, it tended to be unproven. It may in some ways make it harder and make it more difficult. And then if you have to remove things suddenly, that may make things worse. And so at the end of the day, um, can't tell you if it's better or not, but we 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 went we went against that approach. And um, the other thing that we really wanted to push is, if at all possible, um, make sure it's obviously in a negative pressure than a closed room. Um, there's a stepwise approach to um, you know moving up on oxygenation if you end up with it. We we started earlier moving to early intubation, and I think along with the rest of the country started moving away from that. 
Um, and so can, if we can avoid it, we do. Um, but obviously many, many patients uh, were getting intubated. And, and, we, and, I, and I, I saw some early data. You know, we know that if you get intubated, our, um, the outcomes are generally poor. They're not, they're not universally poor, but they're generally poor. Um, although we've had some wonderful, you know, miraculous, I would say almost miraculous saves um, and people walked out. So, so it's not, um, you know, it, it still is the right approach in, in some patients, but it's probably not the right approach early on. Um, and I think the other, the other piece that um, I just get to get into next is that we were very, very aggressive making sure we had goals of um, care and goals of life discussions with the patients prior to intubation. Um, and we, we were very lucky as we had resources from our palliative care groups. Um, we have palliative care people as part of our department, um, but we were um, extremely aggressive making sure those discussions were had with the patients. As you're escalating through your hypoxia and looking at your interventions, are you prioritizing high flow nasal cannula before you move somebody to BiPAP or CPAP? We generally did. We generally did. Oh, I would tell you there were some resource issues at times. Sometimes there was more BiPAP available. Sometimes there was more high flow nasal cannula available. And I'm sure that's going to be the same for, for everyone. Um, but we generally prioritize high flow. It was a little bit easier to control. It was probably a little bit safer, caused a little bit less aerosolization. We were able to cover it a little better. Um, but at the end of the day, we, we um, went usually oxygen to, um, uh, to um, uh, non-rebreathers, to high flow, and to uh, non-invasive. And the other thing we put in there, and we have a, a kind of a, a diagram of how we did this, um, was starting to add proning in regularly, not for intubated patients in the emergency department, but for non-intubated patients who we thought we might be able to make a difference. And we worked with, um, we had some colleagues at Mass General who really gave us um, their uh, protocol, and then we kind of adapted it for our own, our own institution. The next section you spoke about just a little bit when we talk about palliative care and we're having this conversation with patients. Uh, did you have your emergency physicians begin this conversation? You mentioned there was a team as well from palliative care that could come and have these conversations, but I'm assuming your, your emergency personnel were starting these conversations immediately. Sure. So we would, st we would start in certain times. We were the only one having the conversation and that's not, not unusual for us. Um, but we also had teams around, uh, and we were also able to do some through, I call it telehealth, but it was really, you know, an iPad, um, that they were able to talk to the patients and also talk to the families, so the families weren't able to come into the emergency department. So there was, there was a lot of three-way discussions going on in many, in many ways, and it may be multiple discussions. Um, we found that, especially for elderly ill patients, um, when palliative care talked to them and kind of laid out the different options, um, there actually was a relatively high rate of patients who did not want to be intubated. Um, and, it, and it was never, you know, explained to them of, you know, you're not going to get off a ventilator. We did give them, you know, some scenarios of what the likelihood was, but it was still kind of unknown to us. Um, we didn't tell anyone that they couldn't. And, and I think there was some concern early on that there was going to be a lot more ethical discussions about ventilator management and ventilator um, distribution, but we did not get to that point, at least within our system. Um, so we never had to get to that. My guess is that because there are so many palliative care discussions and people often elected for that, um, that may have made a difference. Um, but, I, but I think uh, people, we had very, very realistic discussions with patients. And um, for many, they chose they did not want to be intubated. 
and you used in this protocol, it lists the SOFA score as a way to kind of give a prognosis for a patient or a risk uh, assessment for them to give them a, an idea of what their mortality might be to help them in that decision-making. Is that right? Yeah. I, I, you know, it was, it was one of the pieces that we gave to our physicians. The, the, the reality is that's not necessarily validated for this disease, mm-hmm. um, but there's really nothing validated for this disease. And we know with the right SOFA score, the chance of the patient doing well is, is pretty small. Right. Um, so, so I think there was a combination of there was clinical judgment. There was some objective criteria that we thought was reasonable to at least help with that discussion. Um, and then, you know, as that was kind of put into the goals of life and what did patients want in their goals of care, it, it wasn't it, it really helped, I think, kind of um, give people a realistic assessment of what the chances were and what what did they want. Another item I find very helpful in this section is figure one, which talks about dyspnea in the palliation of someone at the end of life, specifically listing doses of opioids and the response to those and how to progress through those medications uh, all the way up to even you know regular uh, IV drips of morphine and, and, ha- and hydromorphone and how to dose those uh, plus minus lorazepam. It's an excellent figure and something I don't usually do in the emergency department. Uh, did you get a lot of positive feedback for including that? I did. I mean, that I think that's, you know, the same thing. None of us do it all the time. You know, we have occasionally and we, and we have resources for setting up drips, but the reality is we realized that if we, we were going to have to deal with this much more often, um, you know, we went back and forth, actually, including a section on all about palliative care and how to introduce it and so forth. And we thought, actually, that was going on. Many emergency physicians are familiar with it. We really wanted to get, well, let's say they agree to it. How do you make them comfortable? We thought that was really, really a priority. And so that's why we put that in. Um, and people used it. And I think it's, I think it's actually very helpful. You know, in, in, the middle, in the middle of all of this, the last thing you want to do is look up, how do you do this? Uh, and so I thought it was helpful. And then there is a table there with some excellent talking points for having the conversation about death with patients and how some of the uh, interesting points to highlight for the patient, common questions they're going to have, also exceedingly helpful. In the next section, this is section eight now, there was a discussion of some, some smart phrases or key paragraphs you can include in your EMR for discharging patients. Is this primarily instructions to give a patient so that they know when to return if they're getting worse? Uh, so there's a couple things we put in there. One is for um, smart phrases for your own documentation. And so if there's a large volume. You know, we had days where, you know, 100 patients, you know, just be moving through one after another. And a lot of it was, so it was a combination of ones that were done in the emergency department, ones that were being done in tents, ones that were done in alternate care sites. And we wanted consistency. So a lot of this is based on how do we make sure we're delivering the same care and how do we make sure that people are getting the same message? And because we not only had, you know, emergency physicians, residents, PAs involved, but we had people from other services that were redeployed to the emergency department to help us out um, who did not naturally do this. We wanted to be able to say, this is a consistent way of both thinking about this, being able to document this and being able to give discharge instructions. And so these are the um, smart phrases. A lot of these are um, uh, what to put in. There's something for consults. Um, So if the consult uh, does a consult in the emergency department, this is how they can document it. Um, because in many cases they weren't coming, they were off-site, et cetera. Um, and then, then we put in um, one of our discharge instructions for patients who likely had COVID. And we put two pieces in there, one for those who got a test and one for those who didn't get a test. 
Um, and that changed, you know, we, we had for about a week, we had testing for everyone and then it just went away and, you know, it was clear. We were also following the Department of Health guidelines where there just wasn't enough testing. And so at, at for a large time, and it's just slowly changing now is unless you're getting admitted, you did not get a test. Did any of your departments make use of the telehealth components within the department? Say, for example, you have somebody in negative isolation and, and you need to go and just give them an update of what's going on. Do you have your physician don the PPE again, or can they use an iPad and roll it in the room or call them on the phone? Uh, we actually used it quite a bit early on before we had the tents where we were doing a lot of screening of patients. And at that point, we were intermittently testing for some of the higher risk patients. And rather than having two people go in the room and don full PPE, we would have the physician talk to the talk to the patient through telehealth. And so there was a camera in the room, they were outside the room. If they needed to enter to do further evaluation, they would, but for the vast door, they wouldn't. And if we were gonna test them or do discharge, the nurse was the only one that would go in. So there would only be one person going in the room. Section nine talks about some of the guidelines for prone positioning, which you've touched on already. So there's a, an excellent table there that lists the inclusion and exclusion criteria. You uh, use this often? How often would you say you've, you've had to use this? Um, for a while, we're using it quite a bit. You know, once again, anecdotal, does it, does it make an ultimate difference? I don't know. Um, we found anecdotally, and, and, and you may also just talking to colleagues, um, many people are doing it. They seem to find that the patient's clearly improve, at least transiently. Um, does it ultimately keep people from getting intubated? It's not entirely clear to me. My guess is it does for some. Um, and, you know, I think there was also a sense of we wanted to do something. Um, and so uh, we actually took some of this protocol for a while when we had, you know, 50 patients in the emergency department all waiting for beds, all had COVID, and we would have teams going around essentially proning people. Um, we had a CRNA down there for a while, and she was leading a team for a while. Some of our residents were going around and doing it. And what we wanted to do, because this was so different than anything we had done before, and when we first brought this up to some of our nursing um, uh, administrators, you know, the answer was, you can't prone patients. They do that in the ICU. And we said, you know, we actually aren't looking to take intubated patients and prone them. We think that's probably a whole, you know, Pandora's box you don't want to get into in the ED. Um, but there are patients that we believe both clinically look better and feel better. They transiently improve their saturations and it may make a difference down the line for them. Um, so we want to do it in a way that's safe. And, and most of this is built around two pieces. One is a, the patient we feel is safe. They look well. We do it for an hour with, um, with monitoring on. And if they're able to do that and we check them several times, and if they do that fine, then they're basically told, do this at your leisure. You know, you know how to do it. Turn over, and if it makes you feel better, just do this. And then there's a small group where they still um, they don't require intubation, but they seem to be getting worse. Um, and we want to try this as kind of a short-term measure to see if it will help avoid it. So they're not necessarily on non-invasive yet, um, but they may be on high flow. Let's try this and see does it make a difference. And that requires a lot more nursing. Um, interventions or at least watching them much closer. So there's like an every five or 10 minutes uh, for a while, then goes to 30 minutes, et cetera, um, until they either get worse or better. Now you're not using a specific stretcher with a cutout face in it like you'd see at a massage table. This is just pillows and prone positioning, comfort around their hips and elbows and that kind of thing. Exactly. Good. 
Now, the final section talks about critical care, which again, depending on your ED, you may be doing a lot of, or you may have almost no experience doing it if you've got an ICU that's open almost all the time and the patients get whisked there quickly. So this centered around first, how to troubleshoot the intubated patient and alarms and problems you'd encounter with the ventilator, then progress to management of ARDS, and then ultimately management of shock. And the categories and the different stepwise progression there, I also found very helpful. And even in the ARDS, you mentioned the prone positioning, but in addition to things like diuresis and paralysis and analgesia and sedation. So I take it this also had much input from your critical care colleagues. Yeah, this was this was really, um, you know, for the most part, this is from them. And you know, what we tried to do with this is take, um, as we saw, talked about, as we try to say, there are certain things that really, unless you live in an IC world, it's probably not applicable to you. And so we said, you know, even if the patient's down there, you know, the emergency physicians are not going to be doing this. Um, but you know, what do we want them to concentrate on? So if we talked about um, uh, ventilator dyssynchrony. Um, they're not going to be doing train of fours, but if they're clearly not in synchrony, not synchronous with the ventilator, you need to paralyze, you may need to just paralyze the patient or at least make sure that you have them sedated to a much higher level. We think the RASTOR is something people are familiar with, so that, that made sense. So using things like that, using um, paralysis if the things get much worse. And so we tried to really focus on what are some temporizing things you could do if your ICU is not available, they can't come down, they're not on site. Um, or you're stuck. This is not all encompassing by any means, um, but it does give some tips and some things to think about how to move through different um, pressors, kind of in a stepwise approach, et cetera. And as you encourage your physicians to use this as a reference, they still had access to their critical care colleagues. So would it be kind of a simultaneous thing? We're having this problem with this patient. Let's do X, Y, and Z, and then call our critical care team and let them know if we're now progressing into this stage type of thing, or were they readily available? Yeah, I think it's a combination of that, and it's also a combination, hey, I tried this, I tried this, this didn't work. It's almost like when you call IT. Now, I turned my computer off, I did this, it didn't work, now I need you to come help. Um, but at least give the first couple ideas of how, how to approach it. Excellent. Now, one last question. This is a, an exhaustive set of protocols specific to COVID-19. Had you all previously done something like this for other disease processes? Was this already a template that had been prevalent for something else that you just adopted for COVID, or was this all brand new? This is this is all de novo. This this came up through. The, I mean, this this was um, you know, COVID has become for the last like many people for for the last couple months. This has been our life. Um, you know, the, and, and New York City, you know, we saw, you know, unbelievable amounts of patients who had this. Um, there's you know, over 10,000 deaths. And so this was really a, an incredible hit to us. And so everything we're doing was around this. And, and, and it was, as people are seeing their volumes decrease and hopefully come back soon, um, our volumes became almost, you know, 80, 90% COVID patients. And so we really wanted to get something in rapidly um, that allowed for a consistent approach, answered the basic questions, and really is transferable for what do you do when the patient's just in front of you? Um, you know, this is not a academic uh, dissertation on how to do this. This is a, how do you just, you know, how do you make some reasonable thought process around when do you get an x-ray, when do you admit the patient, when do you start drawing labs, and what seems reasonable to discharge the patient? Um, our hope is that we'll actually have 
some data um, or better data on this um, relatively soon to say, you know, this clearly worked. Um, anecdotally, it was working for us. And when we saw there was some fallouts or things didn't make sense, we would just go back and make changes. And so this is this this version was, I think, version 12 that came out. Um, there'll be more versions. At some point, the actual um, recommendations didn't change that much. It became more of we started adding things on. Yeah, this is really more the uh, the COVID-19 field guide for the emergency physician. And I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. So I, I definitely want to thank you, Dr. Liebner, Stokes, and Dr. Ahmad for allowing us to take these protocols and and, and share them with our EB Medicine subscribers. It's it's fantastic. And, and again, thank you very much for being on the podcast today to help us walk through it. Uh, as you mentioned, it's a process and evolution. So these will continue to be updated on the website. And uh, Thank you again. Thank you. I, I really hope they're helpful. Well, there you have it. A brief introduction to a massive collection of protocols for treating COVID-19 patients. Once again, I highly recommend you go to ebmedicine.net, look through the protocols, look through the numerous resources available to you. Check out the What's New tab to see what's been added to the article since the last time you visited. And as always, if you have questions, feel free to write me at amplify at ebmedicine.net or even leave me a voicemail at the phone number in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, I'm Sam Eshoo.